Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. June 12th, 2022, episode 213, Joe Sr. Hello, everyone. Welcome into the corner. I'm Kevin England. This week, we're carrying on our pursuit to produce the show, but I have to share. I'm a bit out of focus, and it has to do with my father passing away last weekend. I just returned home from his place in Maryland after spending some time alone with my siblings in his home while we take the first steps to settle his affairs. It's a bit ironic to open the show with this, as there's a passage recorded in one of the features talking about things prior to knowing about this, and well, as I think about it, and the recording I made, I obviously had no inclination to know the events to come. I did post something the other day to the Facebook page after it occurred, and I have to simply say thank you for your support and condolences. Know that whether you know me personally or only through acquaintance through this show, I do appreciate the sentiment and say thank you to all for the kind words. As I think everyone knows when you lose a parent, it's a pretty critical life event. I could say that he lived a full and wonderful life, and I have that to fall back on. And as it is with any loss of a loved one, the wide range of emotions come And the loss is in direct conflict with reminiscing of the cherished moments that make you smile at the same time. It's going to take some time to process things, and as it always is. You know, in this moment, I am kind of accepting of what has happened and can reflect that he lived a good life doing what he wanted to do, especially in retirement. And well, this is what I like to do. And keeping with the quasi-release schedule that I have gone for the show... Producing the show is kind of therapeutic and in that spirit, and I could say honestly that I'm happy to be here, and, and, you know, getting another show prepped, it just feels like the right thing to do. I don't care to dwell on this too much more, so I'll turn and pivot to give you a rundown of what is to follow. Let's do a scan of the show's agenda. Roundtable number one, I did it again. Polished my boots to make them waterproof, and I'm going to revisit the practice once more on the show. Round table number two, I'm doing it again. Producing videos, that is, I'll share what I have in mind for the future. Round table number three, I did it and it turned out okay. I have a report card to follow on the creamed honey made back in the December time frame and how it turned out. Round table number four, I'm glad they're doing this. <laughs> okay, sorry, such a goofy thread I'm pulling here. Roundtable number four is there's a new improvement out there for oxalic acid vaporizers that has me excited, and I'm going to tell you why. For number five, a PSA to be careful in the apiary when it comes to setting things on fire. Roundtable number six, the gnome effect. It's actually working. And the final roundtable, I found a way to talk about cockroaches while giving you a honey recipe. How's that for clever? One topic for the show, I'm going to share some impressions about the highs and lows of queen rearing, and well, we'll cap things off with the local hive report and send it down the road. So with no further agenda required, let's head to round table number one.
Round table number one, I call this one Boots. Just recently, I transported a few hives to the Valleycrest Farms for placement in the apiary there. The Valleycrest apiary physically sits in a field and there's a simple dirt road along the perimeter to make entry, but once you get inside, you have to walk or drive if they have cut the path through the vegetation to the apiary. The grass is often high cut and if you go there in the morning, your shoes and pant legs often get wet from the morning dew. To the point of this round table, I found that my Timberland boots were soaking wet by the time that I was done and my socks were starting to get wet due to the saturated leather. I cannot recall if I've ever treated those boots with the boot paste that I've made. Maybe I have, but my memory on that point does not conjure up a recollection for those. Even if you treat your boots with protectant in time, they're going to eventually need to be retreated. And whatever the case, my shoes needed a little love. Kevin Moment, speaking of a little love, I have to take a moment and reflect on the Timberland brand of boots. My twin is a Mason. My oldest brother was a Mason and my father retired after 50 years of being a Mason. One constant in our home was the pile of Timberland work boots at the front door each night as we each had our own pair growing up. They may not be the same quality as the boots of old, but still there's a bit of fondness for the brand and the look of what I consider to be the traditional hardworking boot of the working man. End of Kevin moment. To prep my boots for treatment, I took out the laces, wiped them down with an old towel dishcloth rag soaked in some water. I paid special attention to getting any of the grime off of the boots at the seams and where the boot is affixed to the heels. I then took a generous dab, probably two tablespoons of boot paste and rubbed it into the leather until the leather looked wet and saturated. I know I have enough on there when there's just a touch of excess that is not being absorbed into the surface. If you're going to do this, Use your hands. The reason is the warmth of your hands helps to soften the beeswax in the paste and I feel like it aids in the spreading of it across the surfaces and pushing it into the pores of the leather. I leave the boots wet looking for a period of a few hours and then I rub them down once again with my hands. The second massage is more of a massage of the leather to making sure that I get it into all of the seams and around the tongue of the boots. If you happen to be doing this when the weather is fair and warm, it's not a bad idea to let them sit outside in the warmth of the hot sun. The heat will somewhat liquefy the paste, and I think it speeds up and enhances the absorption. I know from covering this in the past that some emulated this process by warming their leather with a blow dryer. It's not really a necessary step, but it is an option if you're doing it in cooler weather. The next day, I might take a soft, thin cloth, something like an old pillowcase, and rub the boots down one final time. Depending on the surface of the boots or the leather, it leaves a polished sheen, and by my way of thinking, something akin to what I've pictured what happens in the military operation where they tell you to shine your shoes, Again, not a necessary step, but if you have something like a dress shoe being treated, it's not a bad way to go. When they were done, they looked amazing. A light chocolate brown with a shiny semi-gloss finish and as to performance for water, 
This will rival any commercial product you might find out there. And you can take solace in knowing that it uses beeswax from your colonies, which of course is a good way to go. In the past, I've made three different formulations of boot pastes, and they all work well. One was made with mineral oil, one was made with linseed oil, and the final one employed a good old olive oil. Of the three, the most resilient one, I think, is the mineral oil one, as the other two will go bad over time in your container. So, yeah, the, fat, the fats in them could turn rancid. And you really just want to give them a little sniff test and make sure that they're good to go if you've had your boot paste for a long period of time before using it. The recipe to make it's pretty simple. I'm going to take a moment to run it down for you. You need the following ingredients. The oil of your choice and wax. Huh, not too complicated. Four parts oil to one part wax. I made little small tins of the stuff back in 2016 and they're still okay to use. The linseed and olive oil ones have not gone rancid. For my batch, I use a quarter cup of the oil, or four tablespoons if you like to think of it that way, to one tablespoon of beeswax. Melt those in a double boiler, stirring to combine. Once they're liquefied, pour them into a shallow container and just let them cool. I covered this all the way back in episode number 90. February 14th, 2016, which is how I know how old they are. And back then I suggested that you could use the variations for different uses. Commonly the linseed oil and beeswax combination worked well for leather. And that's what I used for this go around. You might consider the olive oil and beeswax one with a smidge, a pinch of fragrance. If that's how you roll for skincare lotion. And the mineral oil and beeswax combo. Of all the ones mixed four parts oil to one part beeswax, that one is really good for wooden spoons, butcher block tables, and such. Now, one thing I will share about the pace over time, I have used the linseed one on my other leather boots over the years, and even some for work shoes and a lick and a polish. Over time, the surface of the paste, especially the linseed one, formed a soft skin when exposed to the air even if the container was covered. It's not really a problem to pull the skin back and use the soft paste underneath. If you do smell an off odor though, I've smelled mine each time I use them, then go ahead and make a fresh batch. And if you want to pull the skin off, uh, put a piece of plastic or something down over it, it would probably keep it from skinning off like that. So the boots look amazing and I'm positive given past experience that they're as waterproof as can be. No more wet socks after walking in the field at Valleycrest. In 2016, I wrote a blog post on the topic with added commentary. I'll have a link to that in the show notes, and it's worth a visit or revisit if you haven't seen it. It's called Waxed, Wax Pastes at the Beekeeper's Corner. Roundtable number two, Bright Lights, Big City. I thought I would share that it's time. I have rekindled the practice of creating video content for beekeeping in support of the show. The restart is akin to similar, but different in execution, and I'll explain that in a moment. One of my favorite things about this show is the reflection of the local hive report. It is a show about beekeeping and talking about applied practice of 
keeping bees is probably one of the highest value propositions to listeners of the show. Don't get me wrong, all the other stuff is fun, interesting, informative and such, but beekeeping in its purest form is physically interacting with the bees in a biology-driven approach. As to similar but different, I'm going to tweak the outlet just a touch. In the past, I posted almost all my personal hive work to the Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers YouTube channel. Going forward, I'm going to do that occasionally, but I want to switch to posting to the Beekeepers Corner YouTube channel. I've been kind of harboring the notion for a long time, and now with the long layoff of posting videos, it feels right to make the adjustment while getting restarted. To be clear, there's no fallout with Northwest. In fact, things are as good as always there, and I just had some conversations about me, me, Kevin, the beekeeper, being able to say things that are quote-unquote in my opinion. Sometimes I wonder if things I say in the top of my head, live in the presentation moments, they may not turn out to be appropriate for something the association would represent and play off as some kind of liability for them. The event of that, me being me, is unlikely, but unfortunately it's happened here and there. Uh, While it's likely true, not really a concern, I did have one moment in the past that came up that set the seed for me thinking of making this change. And well, since I'm restarting in execution, I'm simply going to tweak this and take the conservative route and move stuff to my personal channel and void any premise of concern. I also feel like, and for transparency and full disclosure, that I would like to have a little more focus on the BK Corner brand, if that's such a thing. I feel like I could bring some listeners to the podcast. People could connect the dots. In my travels, I find that people know us for our videos and are surprised to learn that there's also a beekeeping podcast I kind of think that posting the videos for BK Corner, it's going to be mutually beneficial to the work that I put in to produce this show. And it was time to make a switch. And I put in an awful lot of effort to produce all the content. And I would like to squeeze every return I can for the work. And if this pays off in time to more people listening to the podcast, then all the better for us. As to the format of the videos, yeah, They're going to stay with the same visual style. I didn't feel like what we had was in need of a tune-up, so I'm just going to use the same kind of delivery style. Uh, Kevin moment. Sharon was watching a video on how to do something the other day on YouTube University, and she was lamenting the fact that she was like six minutes into the video and the guy still hadn't gotten to the point. Talking about style... There's very little preamble most times on my videos. I just simply smoke the entrance, crack the hive, and get started. If there's passages where nothing's going on, I'm staring at comb or whatever, I try to double time that so it zips right past. That's what I mean about just don't break it, right? And as to the comment, I'm still going to leave in the oops moments to demonstrate that things go right and sometimes things go wrong. I'm not in the habit of masking some of the flaws of my beekeeping practices. I'm willing to show you that working bees is not an exact science. It's not what you think it is all the time when you go in. It's not actually fluid and wonderful every time you're working the bees. Sometimes you make mistakes. It's really an effort to demonstrate 
You're not alone. Sometimes it's a challenge. Now, most of the time, I would like to think that I know what I'm doing, and you're going to learn by following along. And as if I get myself into different activities over time, and especially for hive inspection videos, it's kind of like a recorded on-the-spot local hive report. One of the other changes that becomes evident is that our videos are shot in the new apiary location. To get everyone acclimated, one of the first video releases in the rekindle is an impromptu tour of the new apiary space and an as-is look at the hives we have in operation in the beginning of June 2022. So coming to our YouTube channel near you or something like that, fresh hot off the presses video content in support of the efforts. There's one last thing to say, and it's going to become evident in the videos over time. I announced in the show recently that we started an LLC, a business, to sell honey and decided to call it Sunshine Hill Farm. We'll be retiring the brand hollow name and producing the content under the BK Corner moniker brought to you by Sunshine Hill Farms, LLC. It's a footnote for posterity. Last word on this, I'll be posting videos to YouTube channel directly and to the blog roll of BK Corner website going forward. So if there's videos, you'll be able to find that out from that. I'm shooting scenes with my new quote-unquote video camera in 4K. I think that's a bit goofy to mention. But the fact is, with people sometimes watching videos on their smart TVs now, all smart TVs have YouTube, you can actually watch it in high def on those devices and they're going to look good. Discover some links in the show notes for the apiary go-round that I just spoke of and of the homepage of the YouTube channel as well as the first round of videos that were produced from the past weekend. You can also find the announcement on the BK Corner website at bkcorner.org. And this is where I offer the customary thanks for stopping by and please like and subscribe to our content. <laughs> I'm so bad at that. Roundtable number three, so close and yet delicious. Not too long ago, I tried my hand at the dice method of creamed honey. Stan Wozniowski had some cream honey of high quality, and I know I spoke of this on the show. I walked the process and said I would report back the outcome. I had expressed my frustration that the honey wouldn't crystallize. I made it over the Christmas break, and come early March, it had not formed any crystallization, none at all. I kind of stuck it to the side and to be honest, forgot about it. I meant to keep it in the cool basement, but left it in the dining room where it was a bit warmer than it's supposed to be, if you follow in the, the dice method for proper crystal formation. This week has been the first warm week of spring, so much so that it's an air conditioner weather and for the interior of the house, that made me think, hmm, it's hot in here. Where did I leave that creamed honey? Somewhere in the back of my mind, I'd left a reminder not to forget that the creamed honey was not in a coolish place. And if left there, it would melt the crystals and defeat the whole purpose and put us back to scratch. Sure enough, when I pulled the first jar out of the box to check on it, I couldn't help but look to see if it had finally crystallized. And lo and behold, it got there during that time where I ignored it. Kind of... Like a watch pot never boils, it was finally fully crystallized. And, you know, if I talk about the timing, it was just in time. It was warm enough in the dining room that it had liquefied all the honey but didn't melt the crystals. Yeah, just 
just eke that one out. I promptly fetched the whole box, brought it together, and put it down in the basement. Our basement stays cool even in summer. And it's safe to think that it will not find temperatures down there that will foil the microfine crystals, melt them, cause them any harm over the summertime. Now, coming back to the dice method, leaving this in the dining room, not a good play because it was a little bit warmer. If I think back to January, February, it was too cold in the basement. You're looking for that Goldilocks thing where the temperature is just right and the formation of the crystals is great. The temperature range in the dining room over winter was somewhere in the 60s when we didn't, you know, I have to explain that. Our house has electric baseboard heating. We turn the heat on in the zones where we're living and we don't use our formal dining room very much. So we tend to leave it on the cool side, which is great for crystallizing honey and holding it at the right temperature somewhere in the 60s. The difficulty is if you lose track of it and it gets into springtime and the house warms up, then you're not in the 60s anymore and I probably should have put it down in the basement. Ah, okay. As to the jar I opened, I had a moment of disappointment at tasting the minor grittiness in its warmed up form. I shook that off though and put it in the refrigerator, reserving judgment for a later time, and this is an important point. As to the final grade, originally in the soft set mode, meaning when it was almost melted, I would have given it a C, as in C as in Charlie. After it firmed up in the cold refrigerator, it's a solid B+. The thing is, when it's cooled, the liquid part, if there is any, right, the softer set part, it somewhat masks the grittiness of the crystallization that occurred. I think it's true of any creamed honey. If you took the best creamed honey you could find and let it warm up, it would liquefy and you would taste just a touch of grittiness. Now the super good ones, mm, they're able to really grind that crystal small and hold it at the right temperature. And This is a home batch brew, folks. If it's warmed and allowed to be thin, the liquefied warm honey washes over your tongue when you eat it. And then anything that's crystallized is left for your tongue to interact with. And if there's any grittiness to it, it's more noticeable. When it's cold, though, you get a different sensation. I would say, I don't mean it should be cold, cold. It should be cool and still be good. But left to room temperature... It's not as luxurious. So even with good, good creamed honey that I purchase, I keep it in the fridge. B plus, not what I wanted, but I'll take it. Honestly, it's as good as some average creamed honeys that I've had. Maybe better, I think. As to where things went wrong, I should have kept track of it. In the winter months, basement was too cool. I brought it upstairs thinking it was the place to store near the ideal temp. And I was right for a period of time. The honey was really, really slow to crystallize. If it had crystallized sooner, I would have gotten out of trouble. And given how long it took, it sat in a warm room and you know, just need to pay attention to it. Now you have to take into consideration that I'm being picky. I wanted to nail it out of the gate and being fussy only compels me to make it better next time. Given I'm in this learning method, I made a small batch. 
that lets me consume what we have, and oh yes, I will, and getting on to making another go-round this fall. No problem with consuming it. My morning breakfast consists of a mix of things off and on, egg on English muffin, oatmeal, homemade waffles on special occasions. But when there's creamed honey, you can bet that peanut butter and creamed honey on wheat bread sandwiches in my future. It's kind of like when you make peach or strawberry jam. That first few weeks is pure decadence of enjoying the fruits of your labor. As to this experience, we're grateful to enjoy the fruits of our honeybee's labor. If you want to know about the dice method that I talked about, just search for it. You're going to find it. There's plenty of stuff out there. Or you can go back and listen to the past shows where I described how to do it. Roundtable number four called this one 18 volts of goodness. There's something new emerging, and I like the direction it's going in. I'm speaking of oxalic acid vaporizers and the advancement in their design specifically around how they are being powered. I've seen a few fledgling articles about two different makers creating oxalic acid vaporizers with built-in battery ports. The ports, get this, allow you to plug in a normal power tool battery. Some of the offerings I've seen, Milwaukee, DeWalt, Hitachi, or whatever you have, within reason. Soon enough, you'll be able to pull the battery off the charger bay from your drills and power tools and plug it into the self-contained vaporizer and be truly portable. If there's one knock on the current day vaporizers, it's about getting power to them in the field. While it's not insurmountable, it's often not convenient and there's really no standard. If you have power, all the better, as it simply means a quick deployment of an extension cord, meaning your apiary is within run of some place that supplies power. But alas, how many of us can run an extension cord out to the apiary or have plugs in the vicinity? And wouldn't a true cordless situation be convenient? Now, some use small batteries, some use large car batteries, some have charging banks used to restart cars, and well, it would be simply ingenious to take a power tool battery like the one in your garage or workshop and pop it in easy peasy. My guess is some of the early prototypes had to work out the kinks. Engineering-wise, there's a few things I would think that could be a concern. First is, does the battery have enough oomph to light the crucible to a sufficient temperature to properly convert the oxalic acid crystals to vapor. Let me talk about that for a second. What I know from reading all this, and I only know because people give feedback, it's one thing to heat it up, to melt the crystals, and to form a gas. But the method and the process by which you do that is important, apparently. If you heat it up too quick, you get a bad reaction. If you don't heat it up fast enough, you get a bad reaction. There is some sort of Goldilocks point where you heat it up properly, the crystallization occurs, and the proper chemical reaction occurs to create the vapor that's going to go into the hive. And if you do it wrong, one, it's wrong. It could burn the materials, change the chemical composition, not be effective, and also it's not going to go into the colony and then subsequently crystallize the proper way and all of that. I would like to think that the more sophisticated 
makers of these things and or the more engineer inclined people who do research on this understand the whole process of the vaporization point and the heats and and temperatures that are involved heats the temperatures that are involved in order to make the proper chemical reaction process you know you see all these people online making their own and they're buying parts and pieces and they're yeah they're making something that heats the liquid up or heats the the crystals up and does form a vaporization but is it right i i I don't know the answer to that that's why i would be inclined to think that one of the you know stalwarts oxivap is one that probably has it right obviously they're the commercial benchmark that everybody has the second thing that i would have questions about has to do with the battery plug-in I want to make sure that this device is not going to have negative effects on my battery. That would be a showstopper as power tools are darn expensive. And you have to think about these batteries. They were engineered for the power they need to deliver over time to the device that they were made for. Most likely a drill, a hammer drill, a power drill. But, you know, they make them so they work now on reciprocating saws and other things. Will the engineering work out? Now, these devices, the batteries, are pretty sophisticated. If you take the power consumption process that they were designed for, meaning the power tool for DeWalt, if that's the kind you have, and you put them into this oxalic acid vaporization, and you pull the power from them time after time after time as you move from hive to hive to hive, is that work? Is it a match? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, Ideally, the batteries themselves self-protect themselves. More to the point, if you've ever taken a power tool battery pack apart, you would note that they have battery packs attached to a circuit board with programmed electronics for intended use by your drill or your mini circular saw and so on. There's certain fail-safes built in things to make sure that the power tool doesn't catch fire and burn your garage down. By serendipity, if you use them to power your oxalic acid device, then theoretically some of those fail-safes may save it from overheating and causing problems while trying to use it in a different discipline. And I don't think DeWalt or any of them are thinking, I'm going to build a battery pack that's going to be running an oxalic acid vaporizer. And yeah. But they also do create things where you can buy the kit to power something with these batteries. But what I have faith in is there's a lot of smart people out there. And after a while, this will just be a thing without question. And I'm truly excited about where it's going and look forward to the day when it's mainstream. As I think it'll be a boon for beekeepers who want to have this convenience in their operation. And it takes us away from synthetic chemicals. If this oxalic acid vaporization understanding continues to improve and grow and you could use it and there's no way the mites can become resistant to it, then life would be good, right? So the question is, when is then now? Well, now. The truth is, I somewhat make it sound like this is something that's coming to the marketplace, but reality is... It's available for sale right now. I know of two of them that are ready. One is rumored to be coming to Marketplace. There is one ready to go. 
It's been publicized quite a bit. It's called InstVap, spelled I-N-S-T-V-A-P. This is an engineered brand from Europe. And they advertise a version on their website, instvap.eu, that has adapters for several brands of battery packs. If you have hardware from Metabo, great brand by the way, Milwaukee, Bosch, DeWalt, Aaronhall, Enhall, I don't know that name, or Parkside, this might be a good choice for you because upon purchase, you can specify the type of adapter to work with the tool system for you. As for those of us in the US, the one brand that I consider the gold standard, Oxavap is offering a solution for sale on their website, the ProVap 18. They're not cheap, folks. The ProVap one sells for $410 US plus a little shipping and handling, and it doesn't come with a battery and or a battery charger. You could buy them from them, but it's an extra cost. Or you could actually go to your local hardware store or on the web and procure those separately. The ProVap version limits itself to two brands of battery packs, DeWalt and Milwaukee. These are, by most considerations, the two premium common brands in U.S. households. And by the way, those are fighting words to some, and that's not my bent. I'm just inferring that those brands have solid electronics and are in many households. But fighting words, Kevin moment. Us Englands, we've had our discussions in the race trailer downtime on Saturday afternoons between events. I'm a DeWalt guy. Keith, I think he uses Makita. I don't, he's, he doesn't count. Corey tells us that we're fools as Milwaukee is the premium brand and he will not look to see any power tools in his garage unless they have Milwaukee red cases. Teach his own, I guess. End of Kevin moment. The ProVap advert answers some of the questions that I was postulating before. They say that the device heats up in just one minute takes 20 seconds per hive and will vaporize up to 40 hives on a single battery charge. So a battery tool operated oxalic acid vaporizer. Perhaps there'll be one on your Christmas list this year if you can wait that long. I'll have a link in the show notes for both of the devices mentioned if you are curious and I'm kind of hoping to see one at EAS this year. Who knows? There might be one on my shelf in due time. Roundtable number five, a hot time in the old city. It's about fire danger in the apiary. Sussex County, Delaware. Listener David Owens, who is located just east of where my father's place is in Maryland, on the beautiful Delmarva Peninsula in the state of Delaware, shared a message that is timely for beekeepers when it comes to safety in the apiary. He wrote me that he had an incident, which, while uncommon, does happen and brings cause to raise consciousness. Occasionally, we take for granted when we are working with smokers that theoretically the fire is kept inside. But occasionally, the radiation of heat or other incidents will set things on fire if you're not careful. And this is where the PSA comes in. It's sometimes out of sight, out of mind that the surface you set your smoker down upon 
may or may not set ablaze via the heat transfer and the next thing you know the apiary is on fire. Now before you poo-poo this, keep an open mind as I have been there and done that. Our previous apiary had a grass floor. You know, green, everyday grass. Green grass doesn't burn, but that didn't stop me from setting our apiary on fire one time. And it often works out as a keystone cop kind of thing when you're suddenly unexpectedly standing there watching the grass burn, fanned by the light, gentle breeze, you wonder how you got yourself into the mess. The takeaway here is you need to kind of keep this thought somewhere close to the surface when you walk out into the bee yard with your smoker. You would be surprised, I'm not kidding, how quickly dry brush and or grass lights up and even more impressed at how quickly it spreads once it's on fire. Now sometimes, yeah, you could chase it and stomp on it, and other times you might become paralyzed at the notion of whether you should run for water, call for the fire company, or some other way of rectifying the situation in hand. In David's case, he was lighting a smoker and inadvertently dropped some of the burning material he was lighting to the ground, and it took off. The photo attached to the email is testament to the evidence of the outcome. It lit an area about 75 foot by 30 foot. It was all turned black and burned. His experience was that, quote, it took only a couple of moments to go from smoker lighting to a nearly uncontrollable burn, unquote. The thing about his experience upon reflection on my part is that we have had a relatively wet spring here in the mid-Atlantic region, and have not entered into that dry period of year yet. He suggested, and I agree, that this is a good time, though, to remind beekeepers to be mindful of your surroundings and use good sense, ensuring you don't set things ablaze. In the case of our little fire that one time, the grass burned to the edge of the field nearby, where the farmer had tilled the soil. And there was nothing present at the time to burn any further, and it went out. We were really fortunate, though. In our case, our little fire, uh, the apiary was somewhat distant from any available water. And if it had truly caught, say the farmer did not till the field, then it's plausible that all the dry tinder from the old hay, the old corn and whatever, it could have set the neighbor's field ablaze. In David's case, he had what looked to be the common matted dead grass material that's common around coming out of winter and before things green up. So to David, I say thanks for the email. It took me a bit of time to get it in the show, but it's a good reminder of something that's easy to lose track of. I also want to recognize and say thanks for the additional commentary. I greatly appreciate the support of the show. I have to uh, share a personal moment at the end of this. When I originally prepared this, I had a comment in here that I was saying, uh, you know, maybe one of these days when I'm down visiting my father in Herlock, uh, we could get together. In the time that I wrote this, and to now as I record it, I have the unfortunate news to report that my father passed away this week. And I've put some notes out on the web, so it might not be a surprise as you're listening to this, but... Um, yeah, it so happens that this weekend 
I'm going down there to meet with my siblings to have some discussion about that and uh, how to handle the arrangements and other things. Uh, yeah, it would have been nice to go down there and visit with him and give you a call and maybe meet for a cup of coffee or something. But as you would imagine, situations change. So as to my father, I'll, I'll leave a little something at the end of the show for that. But what a strange kind of connection to this. Um, if it's not clear where David is, uh, he is somewhere around table number 15, 20 minutes from, the from, where guess, from where my father is. I have another so, listener email to call upon for round yeah, table number I guess six. We'll this one comes by way of Michael Strange connection here. He sent a note about bird tape and suggested it might be something to look into. Thanks for that, Michael. And off to the interwebs to see what that is. I really wasn't familiar with it. It seems that there are many variations on this theme, but in short, the most common form is something akin to a mirror finish mylar tape that hangs within the apiary and flutters enough to scare the birds away. There's alternative forms, including whirling ribbons and spinners, but the basic premise is that the motion of the reflecting material is said to be disturbing to the bees and they will avoid areas with these things present. Well, the next thing to ask oneself is, does it work? It seems the internet's a mixed bag on that, with most of the consensus skewing toward kind of, maybe, perhaps. I suspect that it might be disconcerting at first to the birds, but like anything else, they become desensitized to the presence of something, and over time they'll just ignore it. Case in point, we have one of those whirly gigs near our bird feeders. They spin all day. They have shiny surfaces. And the birds just come to the bird feeders without a care. You know, if I think about this in some way, Sharon tried this with, you know, reasonable success in our garden. She took pie plates. She saw this on the internet somewhere. Poked a little hole in it, tied it from a string, and she has all the posts on the corner of her raised beds. And they blow in the wind. They do two things. They make shiny things flopping around in the wind, but they also bang against the metal post and they make a noise. It's said to supposedly keep the birds and the critters out. How did it work? She just recently bought mosquito netting to lay over top of everything because stuff keeps eating her plants and it's not the deer jumping the fence. So I don't know. Um, you know, I think it would work for a period of time, but I think after a while, I do believe that the stuff would be desensitized. But for as inexpensive as it is to try, and especially as frustrating as it is to watch the catbirds come in and eat the bees, it's worth the, the try. So while I would not rule this out wholly, I have an update to share on my quirky problem solution for keeping the birds from eating our bees that I employed. I think the owl is working. <laughs> For those who didn't catch what has come before, which led us to this discussion, let me take a moment to reflect on what I'm talking about. As I've said, our home is in the woods, and we live in an area that's densely populated with just about every kind of bird species the Northeast has at its disposal. It's a blessing and a curse. We see on any given day things that are a wonder to the world itself but it also means that we're dealing with the predators to our honeybees. And my nemesis, as I just said, have been catbirds. I hear 
that nails on a blackboard sound squawk emanating from our woods on a routine basis. And I think it's just them reminding me that they rule the roost and there's nothing I can do about it. One of them paramount to flittered over my shoes one day in the apiary, went into the hive and started picking off bees in flight. And I saw the resolution, as I've said, and I bought one of those silly lawn ornament owls that's supposed to scare the critters away. And as I said, I I didn't think it was going to work, but honestly, it just heals me psychologically. But alas, it's working. (laughs) The first thing to say is that I put the owl in the yard. I've not seen a single cat bird. Not one. Well, actually, last week while I was working the bees, one flew up to the bush down in front of the apiary, but then it flew away. I've been out there in the morning, mid-afternoon, twilight. And well, the funny thing is that particular area of the yard is quiet of birds altogether. It's kind of weird when you take notice of it. There was a time when Sharon and I were sitting in the chairs in the back of the apiary and the bluebirds came in and the cardinals flew through and the blue jays were squawking to alarm at our presence. It's quiet over there now. Now there's a catch. And by my way of thinking, it's a bit unorthodox, but it's really not that off-putting when you think about it. To the title of the round table, I've gone out just about every single day and moved the owl around the apiary. I was thinking about it, moment, taking a photo with it every day, posting it to Instagram, <laughs> funny social media kind of thing, me moving the garden gnome around. But I don't know that anybody would have got the whole context of it, so I availed myself of that. I restrained myself. But each day, when I think of bees, and I do think of bees, if I'm not going out there to work the bees, I throw on a pair of boots and I go out and I move the owl to the front to the side, around the back. Sometimes I set it right next to the hives. I nestle it 20 yards away from the hive next to a tree. It's kind of fun, therapeutic, coming up with new ideas to place the thing. Yesterday, someone came over who wanted to ask me some questions about how to become an EAS master beekeeper. While we were sitting in the yard, I remembered to tell them, oh, I have this thing. And I couldn't remember where I placed the owl. She thought I was kind of kooky walking around looking for the thing. And I found it out in the back next to a tree. I giggle each time I walk in to do it at the absurdity of it all. But darn if it doesn't appear that it's working. I really just didn't see that coming. Perhaps the novelty will wear off. But for now, each day, I'll make it part of my routine. I want you to consider that next time you are, say, eating dinner somewhere in New Jersey. This guy might be walking around in the woods with his owl on a stick in pursuit of protecting his bees and giggling while he's doing it. Michael, thanks for the suggestion. I'll keep it in my back pocket as a contingency should things not work out on the owl front. Roundtable number seven, call this one cockroaches. Yeah, I can't describe it. You're just going to have to hang with me. Bee-related things in this world are plentiful and varied. And there's one that I know of that has a personal connection for me in my youth as it was, and still am, a big fan of the TV show The X-Files. It's a bit odd to discuss a show that was hosted in the 90s, but I remember watching this and wondering if the weekly show was going to be one of the linear features of the government conspiracy on UFOs, or one of the producer Chris Carter Monster of the Week 
features, an MOW, if you will. To the point, and this sure is a roundabout way to get to it, one of the more memorable shows involved whether or not aliens deposited bug-like drones to study the human race. The bugs were an advanced robot built to resemble cockroaches because they knew cockroaches were on the earth for millennia and they could use them. As to how this ties to beekeeping, well, Mulder was moving his way through this quirky M.O.W. romp, he encountered Bambi Berenbaum. Now, nerdy beekeepers would pick up that the backstory on this, Bambi, was based loosely on May Berenbaum, a noted entomologist and someone who has done massive amounts of research and advocacy for beekeeping. Before I walk away from that, yes, that episode is seriously worth finding and watching. It's fun cheeky version of an episode and often lauded as one of the best representations of a monster of the week genre in the show but i digress it is here that i'm going to take the turn and get to the point that you may not have been expecting this but this round table is actually a cookbook and a recipe <laughs> let me explain that recently i purchased a cookbook featuring recipes in which the central ingredient is honey while there are a lot of those out in the marketplace, this one was written by said May Berenbaum, and it's really a special treat for beekeepers. The cookbook is entitled Honey, I'm Homemade, with a subtitle of Sweet Treats from the Beehive Across Centuries and Around the World. The subtitle really tells you why you would consider this particular book as a beekeeper. As I peruse it, not only is it full of incredible honey-based recipes, it also has supplemental information about both the honeybees in the beginning and honey in the beginning, as well as little asides about how the recipes themselves connect with the aspects of honey, where they originated from, how they fit into the culture of the region they came from, and how they relate to honey and so on. I've been getting acquainted with the book and trying to decide which recipe to try first. It's a hard decision and everything looks, you know, pretty tasty and amazing. Before I get to the recipe, I think it would make sense to give an overview of what the cookbook layout is. It opens with some information on the basics of honey. Then it turns to a short primer on how to cook with honey, both well-written and informative. Then it has recipe by styles, drop cookies, bark cookies and brownies, rolled cookies, forms of bread and muffins that feature honey in the recipe, a mix of no-bake and fried desserts, pies, puddings, and cakes. And well, you might as well be able to tell that it's pretty comprehensive and there are a good number of recipes in the pages. It's 186 pages and the version I have is a soft cover with recipes that seem simple and easy to follow. Now I have one bit of sentiment to share and it has to do with the instructions for the recipe, and a little bit about style. In older days, and with recipes handed down over time, there's a tendency to be less verbose when it comes to the instructions. Recipe writers assume you know the basics, and they do not articulate the full details. For me, it's kind of like reading the recipe cards my mother used to make. Short on elaboration, but given I had cooked with her, I knew the methods and could fill in the blanks. 
I thought it was important to call that out for novices. These recipes might need some moderate cooking know-how to grasp exactly how to work through the steps and instructions. In addition, this is, you know, what I'll call a simple recipe book. The recipes have a title, a little accompanying narrative, and a few paragraphs of instructions. Unlike modern verbose cookbooks, it does not have nutritional values, number of servings, and all the other customary notations that you might come accustomed to finding in a full-fledged formal cookbook. When I relay the recipe coming up, I'm going to ad-lib some of the instructions and elaborate some of the detail that wasn't written into the paragraph. If you look at the written recipe in the book, you'll note that it's more summary in nature, and you should take that into account if you're going to consider to try and buy and make recipes out of it. The sad thing is the Amazon Look Inside does not show you any of the recipes, but it turns out the linked recipe that I'm going to tell you about is from a UC blog, and it's an exact representation of the recipe in the book, and it will illustrate the style I spoke of just a moment ago. For this feature, I'm going to share one that's called Apiscotti. The story of the name should emote what it is. Appy, meaning bee, and Scotty, S-O-T-T-I, evokes biscotti, of course. The reason for the title is shared with the accompanying recipe description. Quote, without the honeybee, there would be no apiscotti, as it expresses that many of the ingredients, seven of the twelve, are dependent upon the honeybees for pollination, end quote. Apiscotti, as the cookbook shares, is bee-enabled biscotti, and that makes it an appropriate choice to share by my way of thinking. Now, before I run down the recipe, I'm going to share one important piece of information. This recipe is published. I'm not plagiarizing what was, you know, stealing something out. It was published on the web with permission from May at the University of California Food Blog. And I'll have a link to the Food Blog's feature from October 2010. And here we go. The ingredient list and recipe I'm about to share is noted in that blog. What does it have? Half cup of butter, half cup of sugar, quarter cup of honey, three eggs, one half teaspoon salt, one teaspoon almond extract, one quarter teaspoon of nutmeg, two teaspoons baking powder, two and a half to three cups of flour, half cup of dried cranberries, chopped, half cup of dried cherries, chopped, half cup of blanched sliced almonds, and it says chopped, but they're sliced already, so I'm not sure why. First things first, preheat the oven to 350 degrees in a stand mixer or a large bowl with a hand mixer. Cream together the sugar and butter until they are light and fluffy. Mix in the honey and blend until smooth. In a separate bowl, beat the eggs until frothy and then add salt, almond extract, nutmeg, and the baking powder. Combine the sugar-butter mixture with the egg mixture and mix until it comes together. Now, while mixing on low, add the flour until the dough is a consistency that can be handled. Turn it out onto a workboard and bring it together until it forms a ball. Place in a bowl and refrigerate the dough for one hour or more. Next, divide the chilled dough into three parts and flatten each third into a rectangle. You can use additional flour here to make handling easier if necessary. Place a line at the center of each of the flattened sections of dough and fill with chopped cherries, cranberries, and the sliced almonds. 
Fold the sides over each rank tangle to form a loaf filling in the center and then seal it up. Preheat the oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit. Place these loaves on a greased cookie sheet and bake for 45 minutes to an hour or until golden browned. You're going to slice these on a slant while hot into half inch slices and for crispier slices return to the oven for 5 to 10 minutes or until golden brown. The color of a honeybee. Isn't that a cute way to end it? I thought this was an interesting recipe and it might be the first one I make, but I also have my eye on a honey raisin pie. There's so many choices. Yes, this cookbook has been out there for some time, but it doesn't lessen the stature of it as a cherished collection of honey-based recipes. I think about Eva Crane when I think about honey, the definitive Bible, but this one's pretty darn good. And it's apropos for anyone who wants to browse through its worldly delights and keep the heritage of what I might call heirloom recipes alive. So from this generation, meaning me, a beekeeper, discovering something that's over a decade old but yet still desirable, thanks to May for collecting those recipes and publishing them in a collection for all to own. It's really an especial sweet treat for us beekeepers. I'll have a link to the proper biscotti recipe as shared by May in the show notes as well as a link, not an affiliate link by the way, to the book on Amazon. For topic number one, I call this one the highs and lows of queen rearing. It's a bit of an editorial just to discuss the dynamics of getting into this. You know, I've been reflecting on this a lot lately, and to be honest, my current state of mind is a bit of frustration or disdain over the fact that it's so much harder than it has to be. And I don't mean that hard in a sense, hard meaning complicated. It's difficult. And in this topic, I wanted to explore the background on that. So first things first, to take the choice of becoming a queen rearer, someone that rears their own queens. Philosophically, it's a question, should you be doing this? If you start to think about the way that queens work, the ideal queen per nature is a swarm queen. The colony is so healthy, so vibrant, so robust that they choose to make their own queen. And the funny thing is, a beekeeper needs not do anything but let their great, wonderful, strong, coming out of winter colonies do their thing and harvest these queen cells by simply picking the first queen cells that emerge in a good season, ciphering them off, putting them in queen castles or whatever you're going to do, and letting the bees rear their own queen. But we, alas, beekeepers, human beings, have a different notion of the world. We decided that we wanted to, what? I don't want to say play God, but we wanted to exploit the opportunity to graft queen cells. Now, maybe this was learned by science, researchers, Whatever the origin of it is, it's simple to say that you can go into a colony, pull a frame, pick the right size larva, move it into a queen cell cup, and place it in a queen builder, which is a whole science to itself, and rear your own queens. 
under the right circumstances, just like the swarm queen, the bees will build out a queen for you and you could harvest that and start on your way. Is it a good idea? Yeah, it's great. Universally, that's how it's done. And it's done so ubiquitously that it's to be commonplace. But for a beekeeper starting out, such as myself, even after 10 years, I avoided the whole queen rearing thing because there was a bit of a mystique about it. It was something that I took my time on in dipping my foot in the pool because it was so complicated to try and get to it. I had to be in the right mind, right headspace in order to do it. One of the best ways to get over something like that is to phone a friend, uh, do it together. And Bob Kloss and I both decided it was time. I'm not sure if Bob had those same reservations as I did, but over the last number of years, we've been plowing through the world of exploring how to do it. We both took the course with Dr. Vincent Aloyo. We both have been to a large number of seminars. I've seen instrumental insemination from Sue Kobe directly and, and, you know, watched videos and seen Mike Palmer talk about it and so on. Is it complicated? Is it hard physically? No, it's just a matter of learning a few process steps and executing it in the right way. And with experience, as we could tell, you could be successful. So how does that work out? Well, in the beginning, not so good a lot. And there's a bunch of mistakes to be made. And there is seriously a steep learning curve to this. At least that's the way it was with us. The fact is, even this year, we continue to make some mistakes. And I think that plays into the outcome. And, you know, the funny thing about it is it's a multi-step process and it kind of requires attention to detail. If you screw up one of the steps, you could potentially implode the whole process. In the last couple of years, we've learned that lesson in spades. Even this year, we did something wrong, but yet we achieved a reasonable result. Now, I qualified that with using the word reasonable. What does that mean? Therein lies the rub. I don't know what it means from an experienced queen producer. And I'm talking about a hobbyist. I'm not talking about a professional queen producer as to what the success rate should be and what the experience should be. Let me qualify that by saying you put reared queens in a queen castle and you wait for them to emerge. And by the way, you can wait till they come out and put them in as young virgins, or you could put them in while they're still capped and so on. Uh, this year we chose to take the queen cells that were capped and place them in three frame queen castles in my case, let them come out, get acclimated to the colony, go out, get mated, come back and start their journey. I need to know, this is the next puzzle piece to solve, is how should that go? What should my expectations be? I don't have a clear sense of that. Should it be it works all the time? Should it be it works 70 to 80% of the time, 50% of the time? Which, by the way, would be frustrating and disappointing in my way of thinking. 
I would love ideally for it to be a hundred percent of the time. But you know, the other thing is how does the local factor fit into this? Meaning when our Queens go out and get mated from our yard, they go out and find boys in the neighborhood. What are the boys in the hood contributing it? And how does that differ from place to place to place? In an example, if I let the Queens go out and mate from my neighborhood, is that better from a result standpoint? Only time will tell versus maybe having the bees at Valley Crest Farms and have them go out and mate out there. And it really is super serendipitous as to whatever drones are in your neighborhood and who are they mating with. I have no control over the stock that's out in this locale versus another locale versus another. So the best that I can say about the whole queen rearing thing is learn your craft. And it is a craft. Uh, to that point, setting up the bees, choosing the right stock to graft from, the graft execution process. The sticky wicket, as far as I'm concerned, is the queen cell builder and getting them fed well making sure that the queens that they rear are all the best that they can be. Now, philosophically, I come back to and switch. Is this the right thing to do? You would think, if you're someone that thinks about this stuff, that rearing queens from your best colonies, someone's best colonies, ones that are survivors, ones that would be a good way to go. Yet, should you just let the colonies raise their own swarm cells and harvest them? I don't know. I don't know the answer to which is better or whether it truly makes a difference. The one thing that I know is if I'm going to put all this effort into picking stock, going through and doing the queen rearing of it, and putting them in my apiary, I want to have good success. So last year, we started too late. I don't think the queens were of high quality. There was a high rejection rate. This year we started on time and thus far seen a higher rejection rate that I'd like to see. And other things come into play that I just don't know. And this is where you're in the ever quest of knowledge. So let me give you an example. Shot a video this weekend, a pad number four, two queen castles set in a six frame box three over three the queens that came out were spectacular looking on the first week where they emerged they went out they got mated i looked at both of them they were long they were fat they were carniolian queens they were black in color i thought it was on easy street celebrating high fives all the way around one week later <laughs> dreams are dashed on the left side the queen is probably in there. She's laying away and it's all drones. I don't know whether she didn't get mated well. Who knows what the story is? Wah, wah, wah. On the right side, she started to lay. The pattern looked great. And then they replaced her. And now instead of the queen that I laboriously reared, they raised their own from one of her off spring. Now in my history with this. Let's say that you started a package. You put a queen in there. The queen 
for whatever reason, started going. And then somewhere down the road, which is more frequent than I'd like to think, they didn't like that queen and they decided to replace her. And they take one of her progeny and they make a new queen out of it. I say, just off the top of my head, and this is probably an over-exaggeration, but it feels like 50% of the time, that's a downward spiral. The queen from the queen that they didn't like that ends up coming is usually not a great quality queen. So now, what do I have to live with? The queen that I reared and put in there and started to lay, they replaced, and I see a new virgin queen running around. She has to go through the same perils of getting mated, coming back, restarting, all the time lost. And yeah, she might have the genetics of the original queen, which we reared and so on, but is she going to be all that? I don't know. And so this tends to just fry my brain thinking about some of this stuff and how it works. Now, ultimately, and let's hope that the gods are going to continue to work in that favor, some of these queens are going to work out. But year after year after year, it creates more questions than answers about some of this stuff as I get to know it. Now maybe, just maybe, and this could be possible. I'm not good at queen rearing. <laughs> I don't know the answer. You know, it's possible that some people are really good at queen rearing, that they choose the larva right, that they build their crosset, their cell builders right, that they do the mating thing right. And maybe there's some things somewhere, I don't know, in our formula that's not correct. And only time will tell. I do feel like we've gotten better at it. The quality of the queen cells and the output of what the queens look like this year compared to previous years, it was better, quite frankly, hands down. Now, appearances are one thing, performance is another. But I will say, in the colonies that are operational in my hive, let's take the Lance Hive, the Top Bar Hive, and some of the others, that were from the queens we reared last year, not the rejects, but the one that actually played through, the patterns look great, the bees look healthy, they're productive, they're making a lot of honey. And so from that standpoint, what's not to love and why would you not continue? If anything, falling back on the solace of just quietly learning a craft, how to rear, how to do it. I'm almost to the point, and I'm not, to be very clear, of saying I could explain it to someone. I wouldn't think I could teach a queen rearing course. Could I do it? Yeah, I mean, I have the chops to do that. But should I do it? No, I'm not qualified to do it. I feel like if you're not wholly successful on something, that you have the confidence that you're going to relay to someone how to do it and that they are going to have success, then you have no business doing that. And in my case, I feel like I'm not there yet. Would you be able to listen to me and tell you how to do it? Yeah, I know all the steps in the formula and so on. But I would be conservative on that aspect of it. So what does all this mean? I'm just reflecting on the journey at this point. I, I still believe that the proper way to go is to raise local queens. And I almost feel like, in a masochistic kind of way, <laughs> we should do more of it next year. And I've mentioned that recently to Bob Kloss. We really should set up two queen castles, one in his apiary, one in mine. I'm sorry, not queen castles. 
Queen Cell Builders and Greer and Rear Twice. Now, I didn't talk about this yet, but we had a setback when it came to using the Nyko device. We did it right. We got the graphs. We put them in. But unfortunately, when we put the graphs into a cell builder, there was a queen in there and they tore them all down. And it was too late and too disruptive to try it again. So unfortunately, the quest, the journey on how to do that got three quarters of the way through installed. I would have loved to have seen how those queens turned out, but I suspect it's not much different from an outcome standpoint. So we'll try again next year. So next year, two queen cell builders, one in Bob's yard, one in my yard, and we'll also do the Nyko device again, and we'll keep on learning. I like this. I actually like the accomplishment of doing queen rearing this way and suggest that if you were like me, you had your reservations, your hesitations, but you've learned enough that you can keep your bees going and you're at steady state, then maybe you venture into this path. Uh, yeah, I'll warn you, it's sometimes like slam slamming your fingers with a hammer, you know, but in some respect, it's a rite of passage. And I still feel like we're on that journey. So 2022 queen rearing season continues to play out and we'll see how it goes. I still have other queen castles that have done well and I'm not ready to count my chickens, but I think we'll probably have five of the 10 that we put in transform into working colonies. And from that, I'm really looking forward to see how they perform because the proof's in the pudding. Two years from now, we'll know whether this year those five were a good success. If I see a yellow queen in 2025, this year is yellow marking, by the way, uh, I think that'll be a good thing. So queen rearing 2022, just a synopsis of that. Uh, it, it's fun and frustrating all at once. And I guess that sums up beekeeping sometimes, <laughs> right? If you've done this long enough, you know that those moments are in your, uh, you know, in your experiences, but it makes us all the richer for it. If you reared queens this year and you had a similar thing, I, I'm curious to hear, tell me, how did you do? What's the percentage that went through? What's the percentage that turned into viable queens? And what should I expect? And is there anything tip-wise that you have about mating specifically? You know, one of the things, a short aside, we reared the queens at Bob's house. Bob transported the queens to my house and we put them in our hives. When you're transporting a capped queen cell, you're supposed to wait till the specific day when that's not going to do it any harm. We know that and we followed that practice. It still doesn't mean that maybe that had something to do with it. Yet we know someone like Corey Stevens, he's shipping capped queen cells overnight to people and it's working out fine. So maybe there's some more to learn about that. Again, little parts of the journey all add up to the success. And we don't know if we're still learning whether we're doing it right or wrong. Maybe that has something to do with my queen being a drone layer. Don't know. Okay. I, I think I've uh, covered this to too much extent. Let's put it away and close it out. Thanks for listening. 
Local Hive Report, I would call this a pretty typical beginning of June. Uh, we had a cold, wet, rainy spring, and then all of a sudden it got warm. And now it's above, I guess maybe it's trying to compensate. It's been hot. Uh, in the 80s, 99% humidity, typical New Jersey weather in a springtime. But what it leads me to believe is that our abundance of spring has transformed into late spring and is heading to summer. That's the mindset that I have. And in that case, I start to look at our colonies and say, well, what's going on with them? Uh, one of the things I need to do is just kind of check through them and see how they're doing. Make sure that I don't have any mite overloads or anything going on in there. But when I came home this afternoon, like late afternoon, I realized the sound coming out of the apiary, and I still have to get used to this. The bees sit in the woods behind the garage. And when you get out of the house, you could hear the noise coming from the woods. You could hear the bees flying. And to me, it almost sounds like a swarm taking off. And every once in a while, I go back there to see what's going on and discover that there's no swarm, but the bees are pretty much roiling at every single hive when they get in a kick. I'd asked Sharon what was going on, and while I was gone, it had rained all day. And finally, the weather broke, and at the time that I got in, they were making up for lost time. And it sounds like just a, a cacophony of bees flying. You go, and there's just this balloon of bees at the front entrance of every hive. It's really kind of cool to see. It almost looks like a robbing event. It's so frenzied. So the hives at this point, if I go through the inventory, they're all the hives that we built and they're building out. And they're all the hives that are production and they're packing things in. Except for one. Let's start with the Waray hive up front. Last week I reconfigured it. In the springtime, since it had small population from the swarm that moved in and it was cold and damp and wet, I decided to move them up into the top of the stack. They had two boxes full. I'd love to get them to four boxes. There was one box down on the bottom, and they just didn't want anything to do with it. In a typical Langstroth mindset, maybe you need to take the box and put it up to the top. And since we're in warm weather conditions, I could put the bees down to the bottom board without an entrance because they have a massive population, put a box above them, and I did just that last weekend, reconfigured them. I figured within a week's time, they'd reorient themselves to the new configuration and get up there with new bees because I see pollen coming in and start building comb. They built two little blips of comb and they've stopped. They're not even up in there. The only thing you see up in there when you pull the window and look through is bees resting, which is kind of a cool thing to see, but not what I want. So I think there's two things I have to figure out. One, I have to pull some bees out of the center box and give some open space in that box and see if they'll draw the comb down there. And if I bring those bees up into the top box, maybe it'll incite them to build the rest of it. And the other thing is I have to figure out the feeder situation. I don't mind a feeder that I built. It actually worked really well and was convenient to use. But again, last year when we had the supreme rain on September 1st, 
the water flooded the hive and killed all the bees. So, uh, yeah, I don't want to do that again. Have to figure out a different way to engineer the design. And just haven't gotten to it this time period. Moving on to the other hives. If you watch the videos that I talked about earlier, one of them you'll see is pad number one is the Saskatraz hive. You know, you ever have one of those days where you find the queen, everything's going okay. You go to mark her and she gets away from you and she gets down in the box. I've had this conversation with Bob Kloss about <laughs> losing a queen that you know is in there. You've spotted her at one point, you take a break for a second, look away and come back and darn if you can't find her. I went through that box three times, no joke, three times, trying to find the queen and just could not find her. I found her at first and she got away from me when I went to go get my paint marking kit. That's one of the most frustrating things in beekeeping I have to share with you. Pat number four, there's a story to tell. It was a six frame polynuke with a divider in the middle with two queen castles. The one queen castle had what looked to be a small unmated queen, virgin, and the other one had a terrible brood pattern. Did not look good at all. Not really sure what was going on in there. I saw a brood in all stages when I pulled it and put it in its own box and moved it over by the satellite position on our property. In looking at it this week, it has a terrible brood pattern. Bullet drone, in worker comb, spread out all over the place. And it actually, to my eyes, shows some signs of European foul brood. I have no idea how that turn of events could occur other than the colony is stressed or something like that. Now, if I trace this back, this colony was the Russian bees that I split four ways. And so why would Russian bees give in a Carniolian queen, which got killed or superseded because she's not in there. I've been through the box three times. There's no queen in there, but something's laying eggs. So I did the inspection, had somebody over actually, and we went through it and we found the queen. So you have a queen and you have this mess inside, especially one frame. Now it's only three frames. So she has three frames to work with. If one of them is a train wreck, we didn't have time to I was doing something uh, instructional, not doing actual hive inspection work when we went through this colony and found the queen and did whatever. We didn't have time to clean it up. And so what I think I have to do now that I'm back home is go through it, pull that bad frame and give it a frame of healthy brood from another colony and see if conditions change and this queen can come through. I, again, I'm not sure why that it was in a diseased state, but I think the queen's going to lay and it's going to be fine. But is the queen made it? I don't think so. If she's, if it's her laying those, then the whole thing is a wash. So the question was, was bullet drone and whatever a drone layer or a bum queen? She looks like a mated queen, but if it's her doing that, she's firing blanks. So it's one of those colonies that's in a, what do you call it? Transitional state. <laughs> I have to figure out what to do with it. And I need to do a proper inspection. But what a strange discovery. Now, I want to come back to that pad four colony. 
Last year coming out of winter, the Russian hive was strong and robust. So much so that in the spring, if I didn't split it, it was going to swarm and I did a walkaway split. When I did the walkaway split, I took one of the boxes eventually and split it into queen castles. Now these are bees of Russian genetics and I put carnelian queens in it and I had that question, would that work? Well, initially I'll tell you the answer is no. Both of them rejected the queens and requeened themselves. They're not the queens that I put in there. At least to my way of thinking, they're not the carnelian uh, dark black queens that we did. So, I don't know. Um, I'm just going to have to, at some point, collectively get my notes together for that and, and figure out what happened. There's one colony in the back that has one of the queens that we reared that's doing pretty well, but they have a small brood pattern. They need population. And I went through another of my colony to source. Again, sorry, if you watch the videos, you're going to see this, but uh, not so good a lot. Didn't, didn't find resources in there for it. That hive is requeening itself, it appears. So last week was a bit of an exercise in frustration going through the colonies, but you know, this week is another fresh week and you get to get started again and do whatever. So you, I will say to you, you have these days where sometimes the colonies here and there are a mess, but you look at the greater good and everything else you're hoping is on track and by all signs of that sound from the woods, everything's okay and, you know, we carry on. Local have report things are, you know, doing okay. Coming along. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to go crazy because I haven't been in the bees that much given the activities going on. And this week I hope to, you know, at some point, given it's June, I've got to assess all my colonies. I think uh, Sharon's going away this weekend for something and I might just dedicate a full day to starting at pad one and going through until I fall over every single colony that I have and seeing what's what. I did ask Bob Kloss to look in on the hives at Valley Crest. He reported that they're doing okay. They're working things out. One of the problems uh, there was the hive had walkaway split and didn't make a queen very well, but they're getting that sorted out. And, you know, I think there's going to be wildflowers going crazy there in the next couple of weeks, and those colonies will get their mojo on. So... Yeah, Valley Crest, okay, and from a local hive report, check. Everything is kind of, you know, typically moving around with its problems here and there. Comments, it's time to close up shop here, but before I do, i just make one uh, observation. Our honey labels came, the ones that I designed. They're perfect. I, I think the only thing that I would say is I would like to see them for certain jars, and this is just a knit. A little bit bigger but the design looks spectacular the printing job is great and they look great i'm so happy with it uh, they almost look too good too professional in in a sterile kind of way which isn't good i wanted to have a folksy look to it but uh, they look really really nice and i'm looking forward this summer to selling jars with our label on it and see what the reaction is from people 
If I think about uh, one last thing to say is there's a bunch of bee meetings coming out for the summer and I'm looking forward to them. Of course, the mega one is EAS, but uh, local ones around here, around the neighborhood. Northwest is having a picnic. Raritan Valley's having a picnic. Should be a fun period of time here as we go into June and July and get out, be amongst your beekeeper folks, be social, enjoy, share stories, learn from others. Have a good time. As I close out the episode, I kind of come back to my father and thinking that, you know, we're going to have a celebration of his life. And one of the things I have, I've done over the year, you can imagine me being me, is record him. Every once in a while, we sit down and tell a story. I just put the phone down, hit the record button, clear the screen and let him talk. I, there, there were times he told some really colorful stories. And, you know, as an Army Dude, for the National Guard, he was talking about driving tanks and things that are something most of us in our lifetime would never have a part in. And it's just some interesting thing and a good way to remember him. So yeah, somewhere along the line, I think I'll, I'll put that together. And when I do, I'm not going to put it out as obviously a podcast or whatever. I'm probably going to share it amongst my family. But it might be an interesting thing for someone to just come in and have a listen to as it really gives a colorful accounting of him some of the stories i'm telling you you would not believe <laughs> crazy stories one about his brother and the state police yeah there's some some interesting things in there i i probably will have a difficult time in editing them just to get them to the point where they're palatable for public consumption but that should tell you a little something about the way the things were all right yeah We'll carry on. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time on the Beekeeper's Corner.